Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. This week I'm talking to the well-known market strategist Owen Treacy, whose work I've been following for many years, thanks to the must-read global strategy publication he produces with David Fuller, the doyen of UK-based technical analysts. Owen, who recently moved to live in Los Angeles, specializes in what he calls macro-behavioral technical analysis. It was a subject of a book he published a couple of years ago, and I'll be asking him to tell us what that means in a moment. But also he runs a global equity fund and writes a specialist newsletter about new technology investment opportunities. We sat down, albeit 7,000 miles apart, here in California, me in London, to talk about his latest views on equity markets, bonds, and the outlook for inflation. Well, I'd like to start by asking you, what exactly is macro-behavioral technical analysis and how does that differ from other approaches to investment strategizing? Well, I think uh, if we break it down into the constituent parts, there's macro, behavioral and technical analysis. So macro is uh, that we take a top-down approach, uh, that there's a bull market in something all the time. There's always a bull market in something. So we don't want to limit ourselves to any one particular country or sector, but rather that we have developed a strategy that uh, should be able to work. And all we need to do is to find the correct market. So that's the macro element. We want to uh, keep a a broad perspective and look as wide as possible. But of course, there is the additional factor that macro also refers to monetary policy, that there are really only two big topics. One is that the markets are people. And the other is that when we think about the big picture, that it is really about the flow of money and how much money is there. And obviously, if there's a lot of money being created, uh, that it is easier to make some more of it. And that's what creates bull markets. So that's the macro part. The, the behavioral part comes back to the, the fact that markets are uh, would not exist if it wasn't for people. They're really all about people and how do people react to stimuli. And while every market is different and we are all at least aspire to be rational and uh, even-minded people, that we have to really engage with the crowd in order to participate with the market. And while all crowds are different, they all have common characteristics. And by appraising ourselves of the the characteristics of crowds, we have a better understanding of how markets are likely to react. And uh, the technical analysis, I think really we could call it charting. Charting is a a term that um, that, uh, many people will will, uh, understand. But uh, I think the point you're making is that the way you're approaching the the charting aspect of your analysis uh, is rooted in a uh, in a rather more broader uh, uh, set of uh, tools and assumptions than uh, the average guy sort of working out uh, point and figure and Fibonacci ratios and things like that. Absolutely. That uh, when we think about it in terms of the macro and the behavioral, then uh, how do we monitor that? Well, we monitor it via the price action. And the price action is easily monitored v- via charts. And we can see the actions of the crowd play out in the, the chart patterns that we don't particularly look at any kind of technical indicators, but rather that everything that we need to know is right there in the price if we're willing to allow ourselves to see it. I think also without putting uh, words in your mouth, and I have uh, followed you for many years, what you're also saying is that um, there has to be a fundamental economic uh, macro logic, if you like, a behavioral logic uh, to the kind of things that show up in in price charts. In other words, the price chart itself is telling you something about supply and demand, but it's how you interpret that and the assumptions and 
techniques you bring to interpret those that really uh, that really matter. Yes, absolutely. That markets don't rally for no reason at all. Uh, there must be some reason. And the, the whole point, of course, of looking at the, the price chart is that because crowds anticipate news, react to news, and that very often is reflected in the chart before it is reflected in the media. Uh, so people will initiate decisions on their expectations, that markets are discounting mechanisms. They are an attempt at pricing in future possibilities. Uh, so uh, yes, of course, they, they represent a, a macro and a, a very clear fundamental case, but they also are, I think, better thought of as a barometer of how people interpret those stories. So the value of it is, I mean, it doesn't include, for example, it doesn't include sort of basic measures of uh, valuation per se. So you don't necessarily know whether something is cheap or expensive. What you know is uh, whether the majority of money is pursuing one particular thing uh, rather than another particular thing. So you've still got to make that link to actually work out whether something could be a good investment. You can't do it just by looking at the price action, or can you? I think the thing that I spend most of my time looking for are uh, markets that have done very little for a long time and then start to change. And, uh, and then when they become more volatile, they become more active. Uh, they do that for a reason. Uh, they, are, they don't move from a period of inert trading to a period of much more bullish activity for no reason at all. When you see something like that happen, then that is when you get a kind of a tingly feeling that this is this has happened before. We know what happens when uh, big markets that do nothing for a long time break out. Uh, they generally then move into uh, significant bull markets. Uh, so, you know, there are cycles in terms of you know something can do nothing for a long time and do uh, something very big uh, for a significant period of time, and then it moves on to something else. So, you know, when you do see that. There are certain things that you do look for in the price action and the activity of the crowd that can give you a really clear indication of what you can expect uh, in terms of the upside later. Well, that gives us a very good uh, cue for perhaps now looking at uh, where we are today in the uh, various financial markets. You follow them on a daily basis and write commentary on a daily basis. Uh, and you look, as you say, across the whole globe, which is what makes it, uh, I think, particularly interesting. Uh, when so many people are focused on narrowly on their own domestic market uh, and their own uh, news-driven agenda, which is what we're trying to avoid. Let's just take for you know the biggest stock market in the world, the U.S. stock market, um, recently hit all-time highs, uh, and indeed some signs of a little bit of acceleration around the Trump election. Now, what can you say about that using your macro-behavioral technical analysis? It's not all about Trump, is it? Well, it isn't all about Trump. I think the most important thing that happened uh, to the U.S. markets is that they completed a 13-year range in 2012. You know, so they have already been rallying for a pretty significant amount of time. And uh, the bottom was in 2009, and we're now in 2017. So it is not an early market you know, that people might only be engaging with it as a response to what happened in the election in November. But uh, this is a market that's been going up for a fair amount of time already. The reason that it has picked up pace over the last six months is because people are uh, interpreting the story as uh, they're pricing in the potential for tax cuts. They're pricing in the potential for uh, all those big corporations to be allowed to bring their money home with uh, a very minimal tax burden. And they're pricing in the potential for an infrastructure build. And of course, they have probably priced in a bit too much of it. Uh, we have had a very persistent rally 
So, you know, we are probably in for at least a pause and consolidation. But when you think about it, the most important thing that has happened is that we've broken out of a 13-year range. And generally speaking, that when the Wall Street has done that over the last 100 years, it has tended to go sideways and up and sideways and up and sideways and up. And, well, it went sideways for a long time. So, yes, we might be in for some pause and consolidation. We might be even in for a, a pullback over the next uh, three to six months. That could be in the order of 10 or even 15%. But that's still only within the context of what is in all likelihood going to be a secular bull market where uh, we could anticipate that uh, there will be periods of volatility, but that the broad upward bias will remain intact for and could be for the better part of a decade. Right. Well, that's a very um, strong and perhaps not necessarily consensual view at the moment, given that so many people are worried about uh, so many things. That's been one of the defining features of uh, this bull market, as I suppose all bull markets, there's been a lot of worry and concern around and rationalization of why it could be about to uh, to fall. But that's not, again, not the right way to think about it and not the way that you think about it. Well, you know, I think uh, there is some way to say that uh, markets climb a wall of worry. And yes, there are many things to worry about. And we are perhaps worrying about more things now than we have in in quite some time, because we now have to worry about politics uh, we, and and we have to worry about what it is that central banks are going to do in terms of uh, the withdrawal of all that stimulus. So those are certainly issues. Uh, there is another, and I think it is perhaps the most important thing that uh, we need to consider, and it is that uh, the bond market has been going up since 1981. 1981 is really a long time. Indeed. It's, a, it's an even longer cycle than we've seen in the, the equity market, a, a generational up, up cycle in the uh, in the bond market. It is. And when something has gone on for that long, uh, then you kind of run out of people who remember the last bear market. My colleague, uh, David Fuller, you know, he remembers the last bear market, but uh, he's well past retirement age. Uh, he has no intention of retiring, but uh, <laughs> the, really the, the very clear lesson is that uh, you can have generational long bull and bear markets and the bond market has been in a generational long bull market and these things do end these things do transition and the transition could be inflation we haven't had inflation for a very long time uh, that i think is the big question uh, when I look around and I see that uh, major cities in the U.S. are raising minimum wages to uh, $15 an hour, that is a substantial advance. And I'm not so much worried about the chap in McDonald's making $15 for flipping burgers. It's the guy that's making $15 today who is going to look at that chap in McDonald's and say, well, I'm doing more work than he is. I want to get paid $25 an hour. Um, and of course, then that is going to just create an upward spiral in wages. So those are quite significant potential threats to the bond market. But the, the corollary, of course, is that uh, the stock market is perhaps the best hedge against inflation. And uh, that could be one of the key animating factors for additional upside on the, the stock market over the next decade. I just want to just go back on one moment there to the bond market and say, if we were at the end of a 30-year bull market in bonds, what would the charts and the price action look like at what we can see in retrospect will be the turning point when it actually happens? In other words, have we got there yet, do you think? Well, there are, there are a couple of things. What we have had in bonds has been extraordinary volatility. When yields halve in the space of six months and then do that again, 
a couple of years later, uh, then we can characterize that as acceleration. Uh, we have had acceleration. There are three primary trend endings that one can observe in any market. Uh, one would be acceleration, but not all markets accelerate up and then accelerate down. Uh, the acceleration can morph into a much more volatile, very long, lengthy, ranging phase. And uh, well, we can see quite clearly that US Treasuries, for example, have been in a range for the last four years. So there is certainly evidence that supply and demand have come back into balance. What I tend to look at is the total return because so many bond investors don't do so on the on momentum alone. It is really about the total return. And the, the total return on bonds went up in a very steady manner uh, from about 1983 onwards. And it is now rolling over. So uh, there is a very clear difference that we have had the biggest pullback uh, since the taper tantrum in 2012. And that is really quite a clear inconsistency. It, in fact, the, the pullback that we've had is larger than the taper tantrum. So uh, there is something that has quite clearly changed. Now, that doesn't mean that it is going to collapse overnight. What are probably more points towards is that we are in the topping process, that it could be another while before uh, we get what could be a climactic breakdown, but that the signs are certainly growing that the, the bond bull market is over. Now, I have to say at this point, just for the, for the sake of completeness, I suppose, um, one of the, I suppose, general criticisms that's made of technical analysts is that they always seem to have a let out clause at some point, which is, you know, this is what the charts are saying. But on the other hand, it could go the other way if this happens or that happens. Uh, do you accept that as a fair criticism or is that just the nature of the, the beast we're dealing with here? Well, what, what I can tell you is what I think. And um, if I'm wrong, I'll change my mind. Uh, so I think you know, that that is perhaps the only way to think about it. You know, that I, I do think the bond mar bull market is ending. Uh, I think that equity markets are, are due a pullback and a consolidation and are at risk of, uh, because we have had such an impressive move on the upside over the last six months, I don't think anybody would be blown off their stool if we get a, a somewhat larger reaction. But I do think that the uh, the surprises will be on the upside and that we are in a generally bullish environment overall. Uh, now, I think that uh, inflation has, uh, has been completely off the radar and that when you look at the, the bond yield and the 12-month and the two-year uh, treasury notes are priced at one and a quarter percent. So uh, they don't, they're not willing to price in any risk of the Fed raising interest rates at any time within the next two years. Now, what that suggests to me is that the, the bond market is has been conditioned. And, and the way that I tend to think of it is that it is a perfect example in the markets of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, because the Fed told us that they were going to raise interest rates for the last three years in a row and then didn't do it. So the bond market has decided that they're not going to price in any more rate hikes until they actually see them. But that leaves them open. That means that they are unwilling to price in the, the potential for inflation. And when you have that environment, you, when you have that boy who cried wolf, where people have seen the warnings and, uh, and then reacted, but then nothing happened. And then that means that they're going to be ill prepared when something actually does happen. So I really do think we are at the end of the bull market in bonds. And I think that if, if I'm wrong, it will probably be only be wrong in the short to medium term that it is only going to remain part of the topping process, that the topping process might go on longer than I anticipate, but that uh, it is a topping process. We are not going to see uh, significant new yield lows. 
Is there a level of the, uh, say, the 10-year Treasury that if it, if it breaches that level, you will uh, tend to see that as confirmation of your hypothesis or your conviction, as I should say, that uh, the bull market is over? Yeah, you know, I think that 4% is a pretty magical number. Magical number being that's the one, if, you, if it bre- breaches that level without immediately retracing, I suppose, uh, that will be the sign that we have moved into a new... Uh, a new phase in the cycle, a significant new yeah, phase. I think that if uh, we, we are currently on the 10-year U.S. Treasury at about 2.4%, and uh, I think a lot of people will be looking at uh, 3% because that is the the yield peak that we saw a few years ago. That is not going to, to scare a lot of people, I suspect. If we get yields up to 4%, then the yield on bonds is going to be quite attractive. And uh, then it will be a question of whether people still view it as attractive uh, when it actually gets there. Uh, What will be the impetus to push it up to 4%? If it's inflation, then we are going to have a significant problem in bond markets. So I think 4% is a very big level. Now, let's move on to a couple of other themes that come out of your your work. I mean, first of all, you mentioned already the central bank policy. We've seen QE in the States, in the UK. And obviously uh, in Japan and and, and also in uh, in Europe now, it has come to in some places. Uh, it's still going in other places. Do you expect that uh, trend to continue, um, or do you think that uh, uh, central banks too are going to have to react to the changing environment they've done so much to influence over the last few years? Well, I think there are two very large <coughs> questions. One is, will it end? And Uh, I think that that is going to be a staggered answer. I guess you could say that uh, quantitative easing has already ended in the USA. Uh, The Europeans are uh, a long way from raising interest rates. Uh, They have got way too many questions and uh, they have uh, done such a terrible job of writing off their bad loans uh, that they're going to have easy monetary policy for the foreseeable future. And I think the much larger question is, having seen the size of uh, the, the balance sheets of central banks expand to previously unimaginable levels. Uh, what is going to be done with all that debt when it matures? Because if we have higher yields and that debt needs to be rolled over, well, then that is going to represent a significant funding cost for government. Obviously, if the central bank owns debt, well, that debt had to be issued by the Treasury and uh, the Treasury was able to borrow at incredibly low levels. A great deal of the debt that was taken out in 2008 and 2009 had 10-year maturities. So there is a significant amount of debt needs to be refinanced in the window from about uh, 2018 through to 2021. Now, that is going to raise questions for uh, the, the Fed in particular, because they're the ones that are raising interest rates right now. When they come due to uh, refinance or to roll over a lot of that debt, is the Treasury going to have to pay a higher coupon in order to do so? Uh, then there is the potential that they will simply cancel the debt, that they dominate certain issues. They may attempt to just simply buy all the issues of a certain bond and then cancel it. I think that that is a, a potential outcome that uh, is certainly, I think, a 50-50. That would have uh, really quite a meaningful effect on, on the bond market. You also look at other things, of course, you look at currencies, you look at commodities, and you look at at other global stock markets. Now, without doing a complete uh, tour around the world, what can you pick out from what you've been writing and observing recently in terms of these big macro uh, issues around the world? 
what what's standing out for you as significant movements in uh, in some of the charts you've been looking at? Well, I think there are there are really two things, and I, I suppose the the first is the UK because of Brexit. Uh, it represents really quite an acute period of time that uh, the UK has. Uh, some significant challenges that it will have to negotiate over the next couple of years to uh, really batten down exactly what its relationship with the EU is going to be. Now, I thought it was very instructive that uh, just last week, what the, the Europeans are most afraid of is that the UK will completely go it alone and then embark on a policy of uh, regulatory and tax arbitrage and turn themselves into uh, the equivalent of Hong Kong or Singapore to mainland China. Uh, personally, I think that that would probably be the the best possible outcome, uh, that uh, the UK completely go it alone. But uh, it is going to create, uh, I think, you know, quite considerable investment opportunities uh, if the UK can uh, extricate itself from the EU while also remain, t- retaining access to at least some of their markets. So uh, I'm watching that quite closely, and not least because the FTSE 100 has uh, just completed a 17-year range. Yeah. It went sideways from 2000 until late last year, and it has just broken out. Uh, so there is definitely something meaningful happening in the UK right now. The uh, The other market that um, I'm paying particular attention to is India. Uh, that uh, India went from 2G to 4G uh, mobile connectivity overnight in December. And at you know, if you remember what has happened with uh, the rollout of 4G in the UK or the US, then you get things like entertainment. But what you also get is education and you get you know, mobile banking. And I think that the mobile banking element in particular is, is something that could be uh, really powerful for India. And uh, I will go into that in a second. But uh, the other big event that has just happened is that Modi uh, consolidated his power by uh, really winning a landslide in the Uttar Pradesh election. Uh, so that really enhances the potential that uh, he will uh, hold on to power in the next general election. And uh, the reform agenda is uh, is really on track here. So you know, there is, of course, one of the challenges that India has is that uh, they have about 40% of their population that is illiterate. And I don't know if anyone has children, but children can use an iPhone before they can talk, not to mind write, read and write. And uh, a lot of mobile technology now can also take your fingerprint. Uh, that the mobile phone and 4G internet connectivity uh, could allow 40% of India's 1.1 billion people access to a bank account. And uh, that could be really quite transformational for their markets. And I suppose the other thing about India is that in the West, we read all, you know, in the media was full of stories about the issue of his uh, so-called cash confiscation or the demonetization of the economy by, you know, uh, telling everybody to bring in their banknotes of small denominations. And yet, as you say, uh, he's just won a resounding uh, victory in the state election. So uh, it's perhaps the media perception over here is not the same as what uh, is actually happening out there and indeed what the uh, what you would say the price chart is telling us well absolutely you know, that uh, what we can definitely see with india is that uh, the small guy uh, might have had some discomfort for the uh, the guys that were taking the big bribes uh, particularly within the state bureaucracy uh, they really got hit hard by that demonetization uh, so uh, i think the uh, the people who actually vote uh, really did uh, vote in favor of modi's policies 
You said there's a, you're, you're watching the UK, obviously, because of the Brexit and the aftermath. This might well be a, an opportunity in the longer term, and the markets may be sensing that already. Uh, and you're looking at India. What about gold, another uh, long-standing favorite of, uh, of mine and yours? Uh, how do you interpret uh, what's happening in the gold market and, and the silver market as well in the light of your comments about uh, monetary policy and, indeed, the possibility of higher inflation coming down the line? I think that uh, gold does best when inflation is outpacing the ability of the central bank to keep up with it in terms of interest rate hikes. And uh, right now, the the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates uh, ahead of inflation really taking off. And and that is acting as a bit of a headwind for the gold price. Uh, Nonetheless, I think that the most important thing that happened in gold was that we had a very emphatic rally at the beginning of last year. And that broke the medium-term downtrend. That broke the five-year downtrend. Uh, now we're in this rangy period, and we're pretty much in the middle of the range right now. I think that uh, on the balance of probabilities, it is more likely that we're going to see $1,400 uh, than $1,000 in gold. And personally, I am positioned on that expectation. Is that in via the uh, by the metal or via the uh, by via gold equities or both? Uh, no, I'm actually I should be long gold, but I'm I'm long platinum. Okay. Well, you mentioned what you're doing yourself. This is a good opportunity to <laughs> ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, one of the things you do, um, Owen, is you now run a, uh, a fund, have done for a couple of years, I believe, um, which is a uh, so-called Global Autonomies Fund. Now, can you explain what that's about and why you felt it was sufficiently uh, important to, uh, to start a fund to pursue that particular strategy? Well, I, uh, I wrote a book in 2013, uh, Crowd Money, uh, really laying out uh, what are the the method that I use for analyzing markets and highlighting the companies that I thought were going to do well in the the coming years and I really took a particular focus on companies that we refer to as autonomies and uh, the way to think about that is that companies now have become so large uh, that uh, they are like the principalities of the early modern period uh, that Apple has probably got more in common with uh, the Medicis of Florence uh, than any other country. Uh, So uh, they do have one very important characteristic, though, is that they're globally mobile. They're completely autonomous. Uh, They don't have any particular loyalty to a country. Uh, They have earnings and operations in the majority of countries. And then there is the additional point is that capitalism trends towards consolidation. And the end result is that we have seen that the number of listed shares has actually halved in the last 20 years through mergers and acquisitions, uh, through delistings, and then from the dearth of IPOs. So what is actually happening is that uh, the, the big companies are getting even bigger and they are acquiring the smaller companies uh, and the, they dominate their respective niches. So. Uh, that is what the fund is focusing on, is in on these very large companies that have got dominant positions within their specific sector and have truly global operations, that they are not reliant on their home country, but rather that they offer a, a complete picture on the global economy. So you're thinking so, of examples of almost every sector, Microsoft, Nestle, Apple, Google, Alphabet, uh, and so on. Absolutely. But isn't this what Mr. Trump and other politicians are trying to um, to deal with? 
uh, with their you know attempts to bring back uh, cash overseas and regulators trying to control this sort of tax arbitrage that you're talking about? Well, you know, I think that the tax arbitrage is really only one facet. Of course, the challenge of trying to create a global synchronized tax system is that uh, there is always going to be some country will see particular advantage in trying to attract these companies. So, uh, in fact, what we can probably anticipate from the Trump administration is that they will give really quite an advantage to these kinds of companies to bring home uh, the really exorbitant amount of money they have stashed overseas at a very low interest rate or a, a tax rate. Uh, that's not in the market at all. So uh, I really don't think that uh, the, the tax issue is as pressing as global growth. As long as you have global growth, and, and I think we, we will have that when you, you think about that governance is generally improving in some of the largest uh, population countries and that we can anticipate that there will be an extra two to three billion people uh, joining the, the consumer economy within the next 20 years. Uh, that's really good news for big companies that benefit from more consumers. Right. And this is also uh, related to your belief that uh, there could be a, a secular bull market developing as well, which is built around some of these uh, impulses, the demographics Absolutely. and the technology and so on. Well, that's a very optimistic um, stance to have. I hope this hasn't just developed since you moved to uh, California and been infected by the enthusiasm and the, and the power of the Californian high-tech industry. But I hope you're right. Why did you move well, to California? Well, you know, I, I actually I, I wrote the book first. <laughs> And then decided I'd move out here, not the not the other way around. How has that experience been for you? I mean, what way does the world look different sitting uh, on the Pacific Rim rather than sitting in the uh, on the, on the Atlantic Rim? Well, you know, I think uh, the 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 only real big difference is that it's sunny. You know, other than that, uh, I think we live in a globalized world, and that you know one of the one of the driving forces behind the bull market is that uh, no one country holds on to its technology anymore, that uh, it is in everyone's interest to get things global and mobile as quick as possible. You know, and I think that that is perhaps the, the most important fact. Well, that's very good. And thank you very much. And that's a, that, that completes the first stage of a, of, a, of a potentially fascinating journey around the world. Thank you very much for your time and for your insights. And uh, for any listener who's interested in following up on some of these themes, uh, I can recommend uh, Owen's book, Crowd Money, which is a very good read, a comprehensive read indeed, uh, and is bound to improve your investment success for those who can work their way through it. So many thanks, Owen, and I hope uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to a Money Makers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.